Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner, joined by beat reporter Ted Colfin. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Hall of Fame retired broadcaster Mike Doc Emmerich. But first, Ted, you talked to Tyler Bertuzzi yesterday. He said he was grateful after his arbitration hearing coming in at $3.5 million. He asked for 4.25. The Wings offered 3.15. He said there were no hard feelings, and he was looking forward to proving himself all over again. What, though, Ted, did you make of Bertuzzi's reaction? No, I mean, you on the Zoom call with all of us, he seemed legitimately mm-hmm. fine with the whole situation. But you do wonder deep down. I mean, you have to hear in that process what the club the club is knocking you and trying to win their case. So you wonder psychologically if that's if there'll be any sore points going forward. I mean, let's face it, the, the guy still is making almost $2 million more than he was last year. More, he is making $2 million more last year. So he's doing a lot better than either of us or any of us. <laughs> no kidding. Is. So I think you'll be fine. But you do, I am mildly surprised they weren't able to work out some sort of longer-term deal. Exactly. 2.5 seems reasonable, but I don't know. It'll be interesting. Uh, I, just, I, I just thought that this was good. No, the Red Wings normally don't like going to arbitration. They like to settle these things way before. So just the fact that this process reached as far as it did, it was mildly surprising. Ted, I asked Brian Burke about this arbitration process. He said the hearings can be expensive. He would hire a law firm and it would cost the team about 50000 in legal fees. And as you just said, it can be very contentious because if the lawyers are doing their job, they would have to mention some of the down points or that Tyler Bertuzzi was a good player on a bad team or the numbers Are the numbers accurate? And Ted, I also agree with you that if I were Bertuzzi's agent, Todd Reynolds, and I reached out to Todd Reynolds on numerous occasions, I would be a little bit disappointed that my client could suffer an injury in the coming year and wouldn't have a contract beyond this year. And I know it's not a normal year. It's a COVID year. And Bertuzzi, he could have signed for two, three, or four years. He would have had a bit of security. He's just engaged. He's got a bright future. But I'm just wondering, again, Steve Eiserman setting the line in the sand, no more Mr. Nice Guy. These are issues that professional athletes deal with. And you're right, no hard feelings. You've got to move on. But it really is interesting now, that dynamic of setting the pay scale on the Red Wings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you saw it in Tampa. Everybody takes a little bit less to keep the core together. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I, again, I, I just think, yeah, you wonder about the mental, this is, might be overstating it, but just the mental scars. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, really went there, huh? And you, you know, it's like, whoa, uh, you guys are talking about this and, uh, oh, you didn't like this or didn't like the way I did that. Mm-hmm. Kind of wonder about that going forward. And well, maybe he's, I, I still firmly, firmly believe he's part of the, you know, part of the process going forward, part of that core. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe that ten percent chance of maybe he's not. Maybe he is a bargaining chip, and the, the, they see him as a bargaining chip 
couple, two, three years down the line. So it's a, it's a stuff to monitor going into the future, but I still would expect them to work out something long-term here in the months or year or two ahead. Ted, how about Anthony Mantha, his agent, Pat Brisson, is one of the heavyweight agents in the NHL. His clients include John Tavares, Nathan McKinnon, Red Wings goalie Jonathan Bernier, Seth Jones, Matt Barzell. Mantha was at $3.3 million the last two years. And sometimes teams don't like to hear this about comparables, but there's a player, Gensel, for the Penguins, Jake Gensel, he's had 200 points in 243 games, the same draft class. Gensel scored 40 goals, but he was playing with Crosby as well as Malkin. Now, Gensel signed for five years at $6 million a year. So $6 million, so Mantha made 3.3. Bertuzzi doubled his salary. I wonder where Mantha is going to wind up because Larkin is at the top at 6.1. I wonder where I wonder where Pat Brisson and Steve Eiserman, they're not going to arbitration. I wonder where they're going to wind up, Ted. No, I've maintained that from the get-go, Mark. I think it's going to be a very intriguing situation. I mean, you look at the comparables production-wise and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Boy, he, sh- he should be in that six, maybe even seven. Uh, the part that mm-hmm. I saw, I mean, he's in for – He's in line for a substantial raise, and that's the thing, Mark. You start doling out those type of deals left and right, and your salary cap space gets eaten up pretty quickly in the years ahead. Uh, he's difficult to judge, too, because of the injuries. You can't pro- – not easy to necessarily project what mm-hmm. he attain offensively, what kind of numbers he was going to have. Um he kind of admitted during the season that it was going might be a tricky situation because of that with all the injuries and you just don't know how to value him to a certain extent, but there's no question he's in line for a substantial raise. And I'm with you. I think it's going to be very intriguing to see what mm-hmm. lands on that salary cap chart. And you know, Ted, I've talked to other agents as well, and it's not disparaging against Steve Eiserman, but when Hedman and Stamkos took less, they also had no taxes in Florida, and that was a huge factor when you're a young player like Hedman and Stamkos and you're making that decision. So the Wings have spent about sixty-six million according to Cap Friendly. So they have about fifteen million dollars left. So there's still lots of money. And just slotting the Red Wings right now, Ted, the forwards. So Larkin's at 6-1, Nielsen's at 5.25, and you said, you know, they may still later today or down the road. That's uh, something that they'll have to deal with. Helm is at 3.85, and then you have Bertuzzi at 3.5, and not going over all the forwards, but Philpel is at 3, and Fabry's at 2.95. Clearly, Mantha could eclipse Larkin, who down the road will make more money, and if Dylan Larkin is the captain moving forward, that is the highest paid player. But I, I don't, like you said, I'm not sure where Mantha fits, but it, it's just, again, it's just really intriguing to, to figure out is Steve Eiserman now letting agents know this is the way I'm building my team and you can give me all the comparables you want. They're going to get fair wages. I don't know what he's going to do, Ted. No, and, in, and in another subset to all this is just the financial future of this league. I mean, the more you hear and read, Mm-hmm. 
flat salary cap of $81 million that could, that could be going on for X number of years. I mean, this coming season looks like it could be a, just a very scary proposition economically. There just might not be a whole lot of revenue coming in. And how does that affect things going forward? I mean, this could be a drastic looking league here in the next couple of years. Before we uh, discuss the possible 2021 schedule and some new news about the AHL starting up on February the 5th and the OHL today, they're going to start up on February the 4th. Let's hear now from Mike Doc Emmerich. He was the lead play-by-play voice for NBC, a seven-time Emmy Award winner who called more than 3,000 hockey games in his broadcast career. Here now is Mike Doc Emmerich. Joining us now is Hockey Hall of Famer and retired NHL announcer Mike Doc Emmerich. Mike, we've heard many adjectives describing what you do, what you've done, award-winning author, retired though for a little more than a week, and how does that feel? It's hard to put into words at this point, and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I will know even a couple of months from now, because it's not been, I think, typical of what retirement will be yet. Um, This was one of those odd ones in that the decision made to retire was Mm -hmm. probably early September. And then, of course, you don't clutter up the playoffs by leaving them. And so then that meant that you don't clutter up what is the most important time for athletes by by making some announcement when the draft is going on or when free agency is going on. Mm -hmm. So that narrowed the window and the launch for a book that Kevin and I, uh, Kevin Allen and I had been working on for two years was determined six months ago to be last Tuesday. So that narrowed the window incredibly (laughs) and it had to be Monday. And so uh, I'm advised that I will probably be talking about the book with people like yourself sure. up until Christmas. So I don't know if I'm going to get a grasp of this until the new year. I know this. I have always prided myself on having a very understanding wife with all of the road trips and everything <laughs> else. For 42 years, we've been married. And she's going to really have to be understanding with all of the various things going on with the book. But she's been a gem. And so I won't be surprised if that continues. I think maybe I'll be better able to answer your question sometime in January or February of next year. Now, Mike, you mentioned your wife, uh, Joyce, who is uh, featured, of course, in your book, Off Mike, how a kid from basketball crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. Now, another broadcaster in the area, an icon, Ernie Harwell, often would mention Miss Lulu on his broadcast. Yes. Yes. Ernie spent 55 years broadcasting Major League Baseball, retiring in 2002 at age 84. If you could tell us the story, though, about your wife and the decision in 2002, Mike. You chose not to broadcast at the Winter Olympic Games for NBC in Salt Lake City because your Yorkshire Terrier was seriously ill. Your wife had taken your dog uh, to a routine checkup in Christmas of 2001. One columnist, as you mentioned in the book, crudely wrote some guys would run over their dog to do an Olympics. But you were there, you understood the loyalty, the joy, the affection, and you didn't want to leave your wife behind. So I would like your thoughts now on that story and what it meant to you and your wife. 
Well, to do this work requires a lot of concentration and preparation and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. The other is that um, family has always come first. And one of the things I always appreciated about NBC then, as well as now, that Sam Flood, my current boss, has always said, family's first. Whenever you run into a situation like that, we don't want you to consider us before you decide about family. Katie was a wonderful little dog that wasn't even three years old when she was diagnosed with kidney disease. As you mentioned, right around Christmas time, I was mm-hmm. leaving for a trip to Vancouver, and it was a trip that was going to take me away over the new year. And that was when we got the diagnosis of kidney disease, which is in most dogs, a death sentence. Um, you hope not immediate, but at least sometime in the future. And uh, we were able to do some searching and eventually get her to UCAL Davis in Davis, California, where she was in line to be at mm-hmm. least uh, uh, considered for a kidney transplant, which is rare in dogs. But she developed complications and we had to say goodbye to her uh, through euthanasia there. But the decision to leave the Olympics was made at about the same time that we were able to find help out in California in early mm-hmm. February, just before the Salt Lake Olympics. And though disappointed, NBC was able to find a gem in Kenny Albert to step in and do all the games I was assigned to do. But I, it was a pretty easy decision. In, it was hard to inform them, but it was easy to decide because had I been sitting in a hotel in Salt Lake, mm-hmm. going over the lineups of all sorts of international teams, I would have been terribly distracted, constantly checking in with Joyce to find out what was going on in her life, how, the, how Katie was doing. Mm-hmm. And my mind and was, was where my body should have been, and that was in Davis, California. So it was, it was easy from that standpoint. And fortunately, NBC was very accepting Mm -hmm. of it. The Devils were as well, because I was missing a lot of their games before the Olympics even started. Um, So uh, that that was what it was. And I know that in families where there are sick pets, it becomes a it becomes hard because it's a family member. Mm -hmm. And when they are ill and they don't recover, it is a tragic loss. When they are ill and they do recover, it is cause for great celebration. And we've had both of those situations occur in our family. Well, you mentioned how you're almost obligated to do all you can do at that time. So, Mike, what does Michigan mean to the two of you now? Where will people see you in the coming months and even years? Have you given much thought to what it's going to be like here in Michigan? No, I don't know other than the fact we've been able, because uh, my being a network employee, they allow you to live where you want. We've mm-hmm. been able to live here for 25 years now. So uh, being based year-round in Michigan, we recognize that there is snow in the wintertime, but there are the best of all four seasons. You get snow and cold in the winter. You get glorious <laughs> falls, which we are sitting through right now. You get spring where where the voice of Ernie Harwell cut through so many of those spring times with the voice of the turtle dove being heard, as he would always say on the opening day of the baseball (laughs) season. And then in the glorious summer where it's so often were 70s, 50s, or 80s, 60s, 80s during the day, and nice cool 60s at night. We're located uh, on the St. Clair River, which is a ribbon of water 
that okay. runs between Lake Huron and, uh, and Lake St. Clair right down near Detroit. So we get to see wonderful sunrises courtesy of Canada every morning and we get to see boats go by and lots of other very pleasant things. Mike, another one of your uh, Michigan connections, 1973-74, your first job, $160 a week. The Port Huron Flags of the International Hockey League in the photo in your book. You said you've got this uh, clip-on bow tie. Only one team, only one team missed the playoffs in a nine-team league. What were some of your highlights or what do you remember most about that Port Huron season? Um, the first game you always remember, and we mm -hmm. won that. So for a moment, we were tied <laughs> for first place. Uh, but we won that game in Toledo, Ohio, 6-5. to five. But then things went sort of downhill the rest of the way. That was the last year we were affiliated with Detroit. And one of the things that happened that summer, we had pretty high hopes, really, because of the Detroit affiliation. But uh, Bruce Norris was owning the team at that time. That was long before the Illich family was allowed to take over in 1984. And uh, the, the, he had the idea, because he spent a lot of his time in London, England, that wouldn't it be a great idea to put a team in London called mm -hmm. the London Lions that would go about Europe playing all the, all the national teams of the various nations in Europe? Well, it was a great idea, except there were certain things called international rules that prevented the national teams from playing professionals at that time. So what had happened was he siphoned off all of the really good players that were meant <laughs> to play in Port Huron, and they wound up spending the year in London having a great time. But we were, uh, we were left with only one player from the group that was originally destined for Port Huron. So we had to take a lot of the cuts Mm -hmm. from the other eight teams in the league. And you know what happens when that occurs. You just don't have a very good club. So that was our year. That was the first one of 47 that I got to spend in pro hockey broadcasting games. Mike, what about Hockey Town? What does that mean to you? Four cups in 11 years. Steve Eiserman in his 11th year as captain, finally winning the cup. But what resonates with you when you think about coming into Detroit, your hometown, and going up into the press box at the top there at Joe Lewis Arena and calling those network games? Well, I think it's probably the, uh, as it has in a number of cities where hockey is the lifeblood of the community. Mm -hmm. And so much of what's important to the community revolves around the hockey team and its tradition and how and Lindsay and Abel and all of that. And then going through that terrible dead wing era when there was virtually no hope whatsoever and seeing it rebound like that. I think the Red Wings of that era that won and that first cup that you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. in 1997 when Steve Eiserman got to raise the cup and Darren McCarty scored that huge goal on Ron Hextall that sort of triggered the big celebration that night in Detroit. I think they had learned the hard way of getting all the way to the final and then being swept by New Jersey two years earlier. They had had that Herculean season the next year, but mm -hmm. had gotten knocked out by Colorado in the conference final. So they had learned from those two and had finally reached the top of the mountain and they were going to do it again the next year. And they were going to be a power for many years to come. And they were in the midst of that 25 year run of making the playoffs every year. It was a place to come mm -hmm. where you knew if you were the visiting team, odd sort of things were going to happen. Like you were <laughs> going to be up against it in the first place, 
But I remember one night I was in there with New Jersey doing a game, and it looked as though the Devils had won in overtime, and the goal got reversed through replay, and the Devils maintained even after that uh, the call was wrong, and their coach, Pat Burns, said, this is hockey town, odd things happen. <laughs> Detroit went on to win the game in overtime, or he wouldn't have said that. Hockey Town was a very powerful place and a very difficult place to win. Mm -hmm. Mike, in your book, you mentioned three mentors, Bob Chase, Gene Hart, Danny Gallivan. Bob Chase, you talk about him using the English language well, the vernacular, not a lot of slang. He had time for you. Gene Hart, the longtime Flyers voice, a great voice, a love for sport and for life. You mentioned the science of doing the game. And, of course, Danny Gallivan, one of the all-time greats. The language there was certainly off the charts. My question to you, though, is when you go back in your book and you had a perhaps fortuitous meeting with a gentleman by the name of Hank Knight from a Dale Carnegie course, you apparently tell a story in the book about going to the course and winning a ballpoint pen for your speech. But I think he said something to you, Mike, like, it sounds like maybe you're talking down to us, that you know it all. Now, of course, you were able to hone your craft, but I wonder what you learned from that way, way back, back at the, you know, at Carnegie. Well, a lot of things. Sure. First of all, what precipitated me going to that was a dinner that I had with one of our salespeople at the radio station in Port Huron and his wife. Hmm. And a week or so later, he called me aside in the hallway where there was no one else. And he said, you know, we have this Dale Carnegie course that we offer through the station and we pay half the tuition. And I really think all the sports guys I've ever known had sort of a distinct personality. And he said, I don't want you to take it the wrong way, but I think you could really use the Dale Carnegie course. Hmm. So I don't know how you take something like that, but he meant it constructively. And, and the station did pay half the tuition and I paid the rest. And then because I'd had a history in public speaking and I'd actually taught a public speaking course at a college that I taught at for two years, mm -hmm. uh, the first week that we gave spontaneous speeches, I won the pen for having the best speech. Well, the second week I didn't. <laughs> and it was then that Hank, who was the instructor for the Dale Carnegie course, spoke with me afterwards. And that was when he said, you should know how you're coming across to us. We feel mm. like you're talking down to us. Well, no one wants to feel like they're being addressed by a snob. And I took that to heart and I took some of the other lessons to heart. Probably one of the key things that Dale Carnegie taught was that there is no greater sound to anyone than the sound of a man's name or mm. a woman's name. And that goes to not only pronouncing the name right, which led indirectly to the establishment of the pronunciation guide that I edited for years for the NHL, but also using the name whenever you're speaking with someone. Mm. And that was something that I learned from following Ernie Harwell around Tiger Stadium for that one momentous day oh. when I was sitting with him in his office because he agreed to be the non-academic advisor to my doctoral dissertation at Bowling Green. And we did the usual interview into a tape recorder <laughs> for an hour and it was still two hours before game time. And we walked down the concourse to the press room so I could get a free meal courtesy <laughs> of the Tigers 
And as we walked down the concourse, there was a woman who was grilling hot dogs and the, and the park hadn't opened yet. There wasn't even the sound of batting practice going on. So it was that early. And as we walked down the concourse, she was grilling hot dogs and right across from her in the concourse, um, on the lower level, a man was setting up a podium to put scorecards and pencils on to sell them. And I could tell by the, the eye contact they were making with him as he walked with me down that concourse yeah. toward them, that they were hoping that he would come over and say hello. And he sure enough did. <laughs> and he greeted them both by name. And he introduced me to them using their first and last name and my first and last name. And he'd only known me for a half hour. Now, right. my first and last name at that point was easy, it seemed to me. <laughs> but the fact that he knew the first and last name of both of those concessionaires, and they were hoping he'd come over, told right. me an awful lot about him and told me an awful lot about what I still needed to be. Talk about a lasting impression. Just a couple more questions, Mike. Uh, we won't even have time to talk about radio versus TV, impartial versus partial, the Hall of Fames, the sports Emmys. But I would like to take you back to game six of the Stanley Cup final, September 30th. I happened to know I'd be talking to you, and so I took down some of the language that you're sort of famous for, and again, it may not be, each item may not be exactly the, the words that you would choose. Having uh, known Dan Kelly, who at the time had to teach a lot of new hockey fans the jargon and the language, and he tried to explain that this happened, which allowed that happen, that there was cause and effect. So some of the words that, you know, that you use that day, he makes a safe play, taken down with authority. More players spill over the boards, arrives on time. He plays to Palat's corner. That's sort of letting people know that there may be something happening uh, in, in the corner. Uh, crisscrossing, clears off the short glass at center, not just any glass, the short glass at center, nudged out. None the worse for wear. You used your my goodness, canceled out, hunted down, puck up for grabs. What are your thoughts about the language and how you were able to critique yourself to get to that level where you're not speaking down clearly to people, but you are sort of the voice of the league and there's a lot of responsibility and that's your style. There's a responsibility. It's very kind of you to, to have Thank you. taken all that down. And I have, I, I've forgotten that those were the things I said that day, of course, by now, but um, whenever we get to a clinch game, mm -hmm. whenever we're doing a winter classic, whenever we're doing games in the Olympics or a seventh game of any series, whether it's first round or not, uh, our bosses at NBC always encourage us to broaden the brush because we are going to take in hmm. viewers that are new to the sport or at least don't watch it a lot. And so we try to do a little more in terms of broad-based um, coverage and broad-based language that might be uh, more understandable and mm -hmm. less and less of the vernacular of hockey. So uh, that was what I guess I was hoping for with everything that you so religiously <laughs> took down, and I'm, I'm very impressed that you did that. Um, the, there's so much of this that is so easy for me to say because I love the sport so much, but it, it's probably crystallized to this. 3,700 games ago, I would have been pretty boring and I would have used a lot of the same language for the same <laughs> sorts of plays. But over that period of time, 
not concentrating that much on it, but you just eliminate the same verb that you've already used in the first period and you try not mm -hmm. to do it again so that you have at least a little variety. There was a guy that broadcast one year for the Washington Capitals, but I got to meet him when he was doing IHL games in Dayton named Lyle Stieg, and he said, if you use the same phrase for the same action that goes over and over again in a hockey game, you're going to drive people nuts. So try mm -hmm. to come up with different ways. <laughs> and so I did that. There was nothing ever written down or that I tried to conspire to do, but just in the raw number of games, I developed sure. different ways of doing it. And Mike, I can't think of a better way to wrap up our podcast than to get your thoughts about the latest NHL story from last night about the humanity of hockey. You write essays. There was such an outpouring of support and grief and love for Joey Moss, who died yesterday at the age of 57 after a long struggle with Alzheimer's and a recent surgery involving a broken hip. Joey Moss was the dressing room attendant of the Edmonton Oilers, a larger-than-life legend, a gentle soul with Down syndrome. I spoke with Sam Gagne of the Red Wings earlier today before we started talking, and Sam spent seven years in Edmonton and on his second stint two more years. He would have Joey Moss over for sleepovers, and when Sam had his eight-point night tying Gretzky and Coffee, Gretzky and Coffee sent congratulation notes but Sam Gagne remembers after the game when everyone was gone and just that tenderness and hearing Joey Moss tell him that he was proud of him. And so that was sort of a, a highlight. And it, it's the story of the day today. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about how this game produces these moments where I don't know what else, what other words to use other than humanity and some kindness and generosity. It was fun to watch the Oilers. Uh, and of all the teams that I saw, mm -hmm. um, I would rank in order in the 47 years that I was around the three best teams that I saw. And that's always open to debate. The 87 Oilers were okay. first. The 92 unified team that won the gold medal in um, Alberville, France. And uh, 17 of those guys eventually came to the NHL because the Soviet Union system was collapsing at that point and had. Um, under Viktor Tikhonov, the, those guys all wound up almost all coming to the NHL, would be second. And the 08 Red Wings struck me as a very strong team and probably mm -hmm. the most imposing that I saw in with that cluster of teams. The 87 Red Wings had six players that went on to the Hockey Hall of Fame. But to be in their dressing room was to be around a young bunch of guys that were future Hall of Famers, but at the time were in their middle 20s. And Joey was around them too. And to see all the shenanigans and the interaction between Joey and those guys and how they went back and forth was phenomenal. But my lasting impression of him was as much as he was a cut-up and they were a cut-up, in game six of the 2006 Stanley Cup final, okay. we are in Edmonton televising that back to the United States. And we always believed as much as we could if the commercials allowed us to cover both anthems. And during O Canada, we panned the Edmonton bench, and oh. I will never forget, Joey Moss was there singing as passionately the words to O Canada, hmm. as anyone could sing. God bless him.
Yes. And I'm sure the Almighty is welcoming that young man today. Yeah, God bless Joey Moss. And, and that's a great way to finish our podcast today. I really appreciate your time, Mike. And uh, we wish you and your wife all the best in your retirement. And we will definitely be in touch. It, it's, uh, it's fantastic that you do shows like this and that you... Uh, you grab some of us that aren't very athletic <laughs> to come on with you because we don't sweat very much to earn championships no, no. or awards <laughs> or anything like that, but it sure is fun to chat with you. And there isn't a soul alive who doesn't enjoy talking about himself. So I hope it's been entertaining <laughs> and your questions have sure been good. And I will, uh, I will conclude by saying radio versus television. Radio, you have to say a lot more words. Yeah. And there isn't any radio guy that doesn't appreciate getting to paint the picture rather than <laughs> counterpunch to yes. replays. Take Thank care, you. Mike. Thanks again okay. for your time today. Thank you. Okay. So long. Our thanks again to Mike Doc Emmerich. Ted, let's talk a bit about the uh, American Hockey League news yesterday that they're aiming for a February 5th start to the 2020-2021 regular season. They had originally planned for a December 1st delayed start because of the pandemic. Steve Eisenman is on that AHL committee, the back-to-play committee. The Wings, of course, have the Grand Rapids team. And the AHL clubs, as you noted in today's story, they depend primarily on ticket sales to maintain their operations. And then the OHL today, they're going to go to a 40-game schedule, just 40 games starting on February the 4th with the Memorial Cup, if everything goes correct, and there's so many ifs, ands, and buts, but they're aiming for June 17th for the Memorial Cup. Ted, in light of this news, when do you think the NHL, what, what two-week period or what are we looking at, late, late January, February before the season starts? I tell you, my friend, it really is becoming a head-scratcher. I think mm – -hmm. If I had a bet, I'm still of the belief it's going to be a 48, kind of a typical lockout season, a 48-game season mm -hmm. in mid to late January. And that way they can still safely finish late June. But I tell you, you, you when you see the stuff around you here, you hear the stories, what's going on with all the outbreaks in some of these major markets – you do wonder in the back of your mind a little bit whether they're going to be sick. <laughs> I don't think it's just a rare, minute chance, but goodness gracious, you wonder if there could be a season or will be a season. You know, this is probably Gary Bettman calling me right now. <laughs> yes, but, uh, Gary. Yes. When does yeah, the season exactly. begin? No, I'm sure there will be, but you do. There's just no sign of this thing slowing down, so you kind of wonder a little bit. But mm -hmm. no, I still see a 48 game season probably starting in mid January. Heavy divisional play, and it's going to be a look like a lot of a, resemble the baseball model, I would think. But, uh, yeah, it's really tricky. I mean. I think that mid-January start seems a lot more plausible now that sure. they're all shooting for a February start. Because, you, you know, you'd like to see – you could probably see both leagues starting 
at the same time or right about then. Um, I mean, we'll. I think I think it's pretty safe to say at this point that December first or January first seems out the window. So yeah, I think we're kind of looking more at mid-January to mm -hmm. early February, and let's keep our fingers crossed. And Ted, you just mentioned the divisional possibilities. Uh, when I talked to Brian Burke, he said the same as you, somewhere around 48 to 50 to 60 games. And he suggested a geographical division. So he and I went over like just distances, the closest distances to Detroit. So Detroit would be in a conference with Columbus, Buffalo, Chicago, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Nashville, Carolina. So Columbus, a good defensive team. Buffalo with Taylor Hall. Chicago rebuilding. Sidney Crosby, the former Stanley Cup champion Blues. Nashville and Carolina with that young defense. It's down the road, but that really does make sense because you'll have a Canadian division. In my opinion, they're not opening the border for a long time, so it makes sense for the Canadian teams to play among themselves. That's seven Canadian teams. And then Detroit would be in this division. So that would be a little bit strange. That's the only teams you'd be playing all year. But then again, the thing that I the thing that kind of baffles me a little bit with all the talk of all those divisional alignments, where would you how would conference play work? I mean, who would go into what conference? Like right, right. division, what conference would it go in? The Eastern Conference or the Western Conference? I mean, that's an issue. Um, do you just put the top four teams or do you put more team, top four teams from each division make it? Right. Officers or, I mean, obviously there's stuff to work work from in there, but I definitely see, nobody's going to be traveling too far. I, don't, I think that's a given because of the expenses. I mean, it's really, it really will get to the point where they're going to, Stay for a variety of reasons. Stay close to home because they really are. They really are going to be looking and pinching their pennies. I mean, there is not going to be a ton of re with no fans in the stands. There is not going to be a ton of revenue coming into this league. Okay, that should wrap up the latest episode of Octopulse, episode number thirty-eight. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, and Ted, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good.